You know, open up to Nehemiah chapter 5. That's where we will spend most of our time this morning. We'll get over to the gospel of John at some point, but Nehemiah chapter 5, we've got a lot to get to. We'll see if I get to it all. May not. If we don't, that's all right. While you get to Nehemiah 5, I want to ask you guys a handful of questions to kind of get us going this morning. This is an interactive portion of the, the message here, so I need you guys to kind of fill in the blank with the answers to these questions that I think most all of us know. So the first one, if you swallow bubble gum, it will stay in your stomach for how many years? Seven, all right? Next one, if you eat a full meal, you should wait how many minutes before you go swimming? 15, 30, all right, so 30 is the one I know, but I've heard 15 too. All right, Napoleon was short, all right? Days get longer in the blank and shorter in the blank, so they get longer in the Shorter in the, all right, next. The Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776. All right, so this is our answers here. Now, these are answers that uh, have been repeated, and, and, and these sayings have been said so many times that we just kind of inherently know that they're true. They are almost truisms. They are so popular, and they are said so often. But what if I told you that every one of these answers is wrong? None of the answers up there is actually correct at all. Gum digests no differently than anything else. Uh, You can swim without getting cramps after you eat unless you're going to try to be like Michael Phelps and do some competitive swimming. You're going to be just fine. Napoleon was 5'7", which was slightly above average in height for a Frenchman of his day. People only believed he was short because the British government put that propaganda out there in order for the British people and the British soldiers specifically to not be so intimidated by Napoleon. Days actually get shorter in the summer and longer in the winter. I know some of y'all are like, no, that's not, no way, that's not right. The shortest day of the year is the first day of what? Winter. That's the shortest day of the year. So what that means is after that, the days increasingly get longer. The longest day of the year is what? It's the first day of summer, which means the rest of summer, the days get progressively shorter. And the Declaration of Independence was actually signed on August the 2nd of 1776. The 4th of July, on July 4th of 1776, the language for the declaration was approved, but it was not actually signed, and even then it wasn't signed by all of the the signers. It was only signed by a handful on August the 2nd. Sometimes things we've always believed to be true just aren't. They're just not as true as we thought they were. We said them so often, we just assume that that must be the case. Today we're going to look at Nehemiah and we're going to look at another one of those ideas. The book of Nehemiah has long been studied as a textbook for leadership. I told you that whenever we began this book. And I don't necessarily love that approach to studying this book. After all, it's not what the book is intended to be. It's not what it's written for. But when you look through chapter 5, the leadership implications just kind of jump off the page. And I wonder what you think of when you think about leadership. Like, what comes to your mind whenever you think of 
leadership? What images are there? My guess is it's probably a sports figure, maybe a a successful businessman, maybe a a political figure. Maybe you think of like Washington crossing the Delaware. You've got some kind of picture uh, like that in your mind. And what what you have in mind is this uh, kind of uh, leadership authority. All this kind of comes with the term leadership. And it's probably accompanied with those images, some sense of power and authority. And the reason for this is that we've somehow created a world where leading is synonymous with ruling. Where leadership means power. Where the best leaders are the ones that call the best shots. The assumed maxim is that the best leaders are the ones that wield the power the most effectively. That is leadership. But is that really what leadership is about? First, let me begin by saying neither leadership nor authority are bad words. I know that they often are uh, maligned in conversation as we look at things today because of the abuse of those things. But power and authority are not necessarily bad things. Uh, I don't think they're things to be afraid of or dirty words to be avoided. But are they the mark of leadership? What if I told you that leadership has nothing to do with authority, of, authority at all, but it has everything to do with empathy, with caring, and with serving? What if I told you that leadership had nothing to do with power, but everything to do with suffering? Not just suffering, but embracing it and running towards it. What if I told you that leadership looks a whole lot more like death than it does success? Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5 and see what he has to teach us this morning about leadership and see if it doesn't kind of reframe this idea of leadership from what we always thought it was to what it actually is, at least according to Scripture. Remember last week, Nehemiah draws the people together, rallies them to keep the work of the building of the wall together. He faces opposition. He tells people uh, to be ready, to be prepared, you know, a brick in one hand, a spear in the other. The opposition was real, the tension was high, but the work pressed on. That was chapter 4, and now in chapter 5, we have this account. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and, uh, and our vineyards. Now our flesh is, the f- is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So a problem is brought to Nehemiah. We move away from the scene of, uh, 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 of the construction that's going on with the wall, and we move kind of to the inner city and to the, 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 the houses and the, the practical lives of the families of these people that are doing the building. Essentially, the work on the wall has put the people of Jerusalem in a really tough spot. The workers have been so busy working on the wall that they've neglected their fields. The workers have been so busy focusing on the construction of the wall around them that they've they've neglected the work of bringing in the harvest and bringing in the food. And so they don't have enough food, 
and they don't have enough money. And so they're trying to basically figure out how do we make ends meet here. And they bring these complaints to Nehemiah and say, here's the situation that we're in. And some of the desperate ones have had to kind of basically sell their children off into slavery. Now, it's not the same kind of idea that we would have with slavery. It's more like uh, uh, they're, they're kind of giving their kids away as employees in order to kind of pay the tax on the field and be able to uh, afford some food at all. And so it's not a pretty situation. They were paying tax on fields, but they were bringing in no crops to pay for the tax. And so they had to give up their kids and say, all right, you guys go work for them. That will serve as payment in our stead. And they're calling out Nehemiah here. They're saying, yeah, we've got this wall going up, and that's all well and good. But what, ma- what does it matter if we're all safe and protected, but we don't have any food to eat? And on top of that, we've got this famine that we're dealing with. There's not a lot of food to go around in the first place. And then you're taking away the few workers that we have for our field. I didn't come to Jerusalem to sell my kids into slavery and to pay my debt for this field. It's a pretty serious condemnation on Nehemiah's leadership. It's a pretty serious problem that's been brought to him. You've paid attention to one thing, but you've neglected this over here. And So what does Nehemiah do? He goes to the nobles and officials, those that were, <clears throat> that were kind of over all of this, and the ones that were exploiting the situation. He goes to them, and he calls them out for what they've done. He goes to it, and, and he says, you guys can't be doing this. Now, let's be clear. The actions that the nobles and the officials were, had taken, what they were doing, totally legal. Absolutely legal. They had every right to do it in the sense that it was, it was perfectly within the bounds of the law to do what they were doing and to maximize their profits and to take advantage of the situation. And while the actions were legal by the law of the land, they were clearly against the law of Moses. And they were also very unethical because they were exploiting the poor, the wealthy taking advantage of the poor. They saw them in a difficult situation, and then they went and exploited that situation. This is a good reminder for us. This is not going to be the full point of our text this morning, but it's a good reminder for us that just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should do something. There are further questions as Christians that we have to ask. Not just is it allowed, not just is it legal, but is it right? Is this how we should do things? Let me give you just a relevant, real quick example for us here in America. It can be easy to think that we are free to say whatever we want because we have the freedom of speech. And certainly, we are free to say whatever we would like. But that is not how a Christian thinks primarily. We filter everything through a different lens. In Colossians chapter 4, it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's a small example, but the things I see people say, especially online, obviously, who would claim the name of Jesus is, is embarrassing and downright sinful. Just because they can say it doesn't mean that they should. It's a small example, and you could apply it in a, in a dozen different ways, in a, d- a dozen different contexts. You can apply it to your uh, different parts of your life. You can pro- apply it to your marriage, to your parenting, to your job. You can apply it all over the place. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And Nehemiah says, yes, you can do this by the law, but shame on you for doing it. You've got to stop this. 
He calls him out. He says, knock it off. Don't you see what you're doing? You're going against the law of Moses for a quick buck. And don't you remember, have you not heard the stories of our grandfathers and their grandfathers? This is what got us in this trouble in the first place. The stones lie in rubble because we were taken into exile. Because our forefathers did not listen to the law of Moses, despite warning after warning after warning from God. And then they were taken into exile. He says, stop what you're doing. And then on top of that, God has relented, brought us back out of that exile, brought us back out of that slavery. We're back here in Jerusalem. And what do you do? You put the people right back into slavery. It matters not whether it's Babylon, whether it's Persia, or whether it's you, nobles and officials. Don't put your people into slavery. Quit exploiting them. Quit putting them back into bondage. He minces no words. He calls them out to account for their sin. And I want you to notice something else that Nehemiah does in, Nehemiah, in chapter 5, verse 9. He says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So Nehemiah voluntarily puts himself forward and he says, I'm part of the problem here too. I'm part of the problem here too. I have messed up in this. I have got to stop. He too was lending, lending out money and grain. Now based on his reaction whenever he first heard about these charges when the problem was brought to him, our guess is that Nehemiah probably didn't know exactly how bad it had gotten or he didn't know exactly what it looked like on the ground. The, the best bet is that he probably thought he was lending these things out as a means of helping and increasing crop, uh, crop production. But nonetheless, he realizes, wait a minute, what has happened here, the way this has been done, the way this has gone down, is actually burdensome to the people. It's not helpful for the people. And I have to stop this. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't deny. He doesn't minimize his role. He owns it. And he says, stop. Period. No excuses. No reasoning. Just repentance. It's a powerful lesson for us. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't pretend that, oh, well, it wasn't really that big a deal. Oh, I, I had the best at heart. He doesn't make any of those excuses. He simply says, I messed up. I'm a part of the problem, and I have to stop too. And the people responded. Nehemiah had used his influence, his position, and his authority as a means of standing up for the oppressed. He heard the people, and he made sure to respond to their grievances. He did not use his position to line his pockets. He did not use his position to line the pockets of the powerful and his buddies that would have made sure he stayed in power. He used his position as a means of care for the poor that came to him in need. He listened and he cared. But Nehemiah goes further. Let's read this entire next paragraph here, 14 through 19. He says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. 
but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people." So Nehemiah, his servants, his officials, his guests, they all demand a lot. They they all have rank in this town. They're all working very hard. They're serving the people through their efforts, through their leadership to get this wall built. By all accounts, it seems as though things are going well and they are successful. Frankly, all of that would have been enough for Nehemiah to stand up and say, just give me a little, bit of, a little bit of repayment. Show me you appreciate the work that I am doing. They are serving by leading. They are getting the job done in remarkable speed and efficiency. They've led through adversity. Nehemiah has led through adversity and opposition. He is now far from his home in the capital city of Susa where he, where he lived. He had a cushy job in the palace. Now he's out in the desert in a city that is basically in ruins. The city has not recovered physically or economically from their exile. All of this, a stark change from the life that Nehemiah lived. And you'd think Nehemiah would, would have the, the kind of high horse claim to say and to expect that everyone thank him for his great leadership. And he had every right to demand that kind of respect and status. He was, after all, there as as uh, an ambassador on behalf of the emperor. And he'd done a great job of leading the people. But instead of demanding more from the people, he does the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what is rightfully owed to him. None of this would have been extravagant. None of this would have been out of line for his service or for his position. But he chose to forego all of this stuff. Why? Because that's what the people needed. That's what the people needed in order to keep going. Nehemiah read the room. He heard the people. And he realized that taking all of these perks would have been an undue burden on the backs of the people. He knew what they needed, and he knew how to care for his people. So he says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. I don't need all of this stuff. It is the picture of leadership. He gives up what is rightfully his so that others can have what they need. He endures so others may thrive. He sacrifices so others may be cared for. This is the leader's calling. According to the Bible, this is what it means to lead. Not to wield power. Not to demand the authority that comes with a title. It's not about decision making or time management. Leadership is about care. It's about caring for others and doing so at extraordinary cost to yourself. 
in his book, Start With Why, uh, Simon Sinek says it this way, leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of those in your charge. Our whole life, we've been told that leadership is about being in charge. But let me tell you, if that is the mindset that you take into your leadership, you will run people over, you will push people out, and you will leave people behind. You will look up and you will have no one following. And then you won't be in charge anymore. Nehemiah models this well. But if we truly want to see how this plays out, we have to go to the Gospels and we have to see this played out to its fullest. So Mark chapter 10. Turn over to Mark chapter 10 and then we'll be in John after that. Mark 10, we have this conversation that's happening between Jesus and a couple of his disciples. In verse 35, it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a bold way to approach Jesus. But they come to Jesus and they say, We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, completely ignorant of what was coming, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant. At James and John, you can understand that. Like, who do you guys think you are? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." So they're arguing over who is the greatest. They're racing to the top of who will be the most exalted. Now, they're not bold enough to say that they're going to be exalted over Jesus. So they're like, no, I get it. You're number one. That's fine. We'll leave it there. Just can we be right next to you? Because that's really the main, like, we want to be as close as we can to the top of that pyramid. So if we can be like right next to you, Jesus, we would really appreciate that. And Jesus is telling us that our race is not to the top, but our race is is to the bottom. How low can we go? Who can outserve the other? Who can humble himself to the point of a servant? These guys didn't belong on that rung of society's ladder. They weren't the lowest of the low. They weren't the highest of the high, but they didn't belong at the very bottom. But Jesus told them if they were to follow him, if they were to mirror him, if they were to be like him, then that is where they needed to go, to the bottom. Now, this is more than just trite, cliche, servant leadership. That's not what I'm talking about. Servant leadership has kind of masquerades as people with power being nice, and we call that servant leadership. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is full-on, no agenda outside of how to best care for others. That's what leadership looks like. 
Jesus gave us another picture of leadership just moments before he was to die on the cross. This is John chapter 13. I'm going to turn it over to John chapter 13. This is verse 3, or yeah, John chapter 13, verse 3. This is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples just days, or the day before he would actually go to the cross. And we have this account, an account we know well. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from, the supper, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began washing the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your your feet, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You skip down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He washes Judas's feet who would betray him. He washes Peter's feet who would deny him. And he does this explicitly as an example to the disciples. It's almost as if he's about to die. This is one of the final moments he has to teach his disciples. And he realizes these guys still don't get it. They're still asking to be first in line. They still haven't haven't understood the lesson that I've been trying to teach this entire time. They've been watching me as I serve the sick and the poor and the needy. But they've not understood what I'm doing. After three years, they still don't get it. I'm going to have to give them this object lesson. And then, just to make sure that they get it, I will explicitly explain the object. So he does this. And he lays out all the implications crystal clear for us. And he says that if if Jesus did it, if he did it, then so should we. And then Jesus says that if we do not do likewise, we have no part with him. Of course, Jesus would leave that room. He would march to his death the next day. His service did not stop with a water and towel. His service went straight to the cross. Jesus has all the rights, all the power, all the authority, all the position to stop all these proceedings at any point. And yet he willingly marches to the cross and lays down his life for us. He chose to forgo what was owed in order to endure the punishment that we deserved. And why? That he might save his people. That he might serve us and love us right to the very end. Friends, this is my simple message today. The call of the leader is a call to selflessness. 
It is a call to foregoing your rights. It is a call to serving others. It is a call to the cross. Leadership is a call to die. Nothing less. In his book, Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders writes about the cost of leadership. This is what he says. He says, this part of the cost must be paid daily. A cross stands in the path of spiritual leadership, and the leaders must take it up. Jesus Christ laid down, for his, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. To the degree the cross of Christ is across our shoulders and never our backs... And over our back, let me read that again. To the degree the cross of Christ is across our shoulders and over our backs, so the resurrection life of Christ is manifest through us. No cross, no leadership. He goes on to point out something that I've never much noticed, but after Jesus' resurrection, we have surprisingly few quotes and teachings from Jesus. We just don't have a lot after he is risen. But what we do have, we see Jesus is constantly pointing to the scars. He's constantly pointing to the scars to prove it is him. And he does it repeatedly to the disciples. He points them out. He tells Thomas to put his hand in his sides and in the nail marks in his hands. Jesus wants us to see his scars. Why? Because he wants us to remember that the path of the Christian life is one that is full of suffering, and there is no way around that. The one that seeks to lead, there's no path to get there that does not bring about scars and suffering. And then Sanders concludes by saying this, scars are the authenticating marks of faithful discipleship and spiritual leadership. Friends, if you are a spiritual leader, I do not need to see your power and your authority to know if you are good. I need to see your scars. So at this point, you're undoubtedly asking the question, well, what does this mean for me? After all, I'm not a CEO. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a coach. I'm not any of these things. So how does this apply to me? I'm not in a position of leadership. I would argue that these apply to us all. Married or single, self-employed, stay-at-home or CEO, the teacher and the student, the husband and the wife, the mom and the dad. We have to consider within our lives what this would look like for us. What are you called to lead? Perhaps it's just those that are around you and you're called to, to be an example and to lead out in that way. Perhaps it is within your marriage. Perhaps it is within your family. Perhaps it is within your job. Perhaps it is in any of those different ways. Who do you have that would look to you to say, what does it look like to live like Jesus? That is the area you are called to lead. I want to say a word to the men in here. Men, you are called to this like no other. Our calling is specific and direct. If you've been at basic training at all over the last year or two, you've heard me say this. The husband's role at home is to lead. But even as I say that, I know that many of you wince because you know how that has been wielded and how that has has kind of resulted in this uh, kind of patriarchal, top-down, men-have-the-power kind of structure. I do not mean that at all. 
Yet much like how I began, we've heard that so many times that it's almost become the automatic assumption that when we say that men are called to lead at home, that means that men are called to have the power at home, that male leadership means men are in charge. I've heard people try to soften this language, and I bet you have too, and what they've said is that men and women are kind of supposed to be co-leaders, they're supposed to kind of work things out together, they're supposed to talk and care about what the other one has to say, and then whenever it comes down to the final decision... If they're in disagreement, the man gets the tiebreaker. The man gets the win because he's the the leader of the house, right? I know you've probably heard that. I've heard that said so many times. What a terribly insufficient and silly picture of what it means to lead. Let's read this from Ephesians chapter 5. And I I just want you to think about this. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. We have taken that beautiful picture, and we have reduced it to the man gets the tiebreaker. It's nonsense. I think the call is crystal clear here. Men, the call is come and die and nothing less. You want to get married? Great, prepare to die. That's pretty much my premarital counseling speech right there. I've made it my mission as a pastor that I will try and drive this home every chance I can. I'll say it up here. I'll say it in discipleship groups. I will say it in basic training. I will say it in conversation. I will say it in premarital counseling. I'll say it in marriage counseling. Men, our job is to die. Die to ourselves. Die to our desires. Die to our agendas. Die to our needs. Die to our demands. Die to our things that we think we ought to be. We are to die. So if anything, the man does get the tiebreaker and he promptly lays it on the altar and gives it right back and says, it's yours. Men, Jesus is far less concerned with your authority and everyone's submission than he is how you serve. If you want to lead, be ready to die. I talked earlier about the elders of the church and the men that lead this church. There's a lot that I could say here, but the role of the elder here at Providence Church is not primarily to be decision makers. Are there decisions that have to be made? Certainly. But the role of the elders here is not to primarily be decision makers. The elder body here is is built to serve. It is built to serve. The men that are chosen as elders and that elect to serve as elders do just that. They serve. They have willingly stood up and said, I'm first in line to die. And I hope everybody else will get in line behind me. But I go first. This is the job description. I can testify to it because I see it from these men week after week after week. We do not get together in our elders' meetings to make decisions. That is not our job. Our job is to do what it says, uh, to, to do what it says in uh, uh, 
Philippians to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ, and to serve them in that way. I have watched as these men have labored to serve you. The question that drives our meetings is, how do we empower the various ministry teams of Providence Church to lead in the capacity that they have chosen to lead? How do we serve them well? How do we serve this church and you, congregation? How do we serve this community? Friends, this is the task of leaders, to stand up and serve. In America, the president is the commander-in-chief. In Christianity, those that seek to lead are to be the sufferers-in-chief. That is the model that Jesus has laid for us. I dare say that if we took that approach to leadership more often within the church, we'd have a whole lot less people looking to wield power and trying to figure out how low can they get to serve others. So this morning, where is it that you lead? What is it that you lead? Is it within your home? Is it within those that are around you, your family, your marriage, your kids, at work, at school? If you're not a leader in here this morning, and I would probably push back on that and say everyone in here has some measure of leadership responsibility that's been put on their table. But if you're not a leader this morning, let these words be a sober warning. If you are to lead, don't do it looking for power. Do it looking to care. And if you are a leader in any capacity, which again I would say is most of us, let these words be a ringing call to take up your cross and see how low you can go. Friends, Jesus has shown us the way. And it's not the way we've been told. The road to success is not one that brings power, authority, money. It's one that puts us on our knees. It's empowered by the Spirit, and it models the cross. It will go through the cross, and it will crucify every last piece of us. God help us for what we've made leadership. Help us be a people that models our Savior. And serves until the end. Will you pray with me? Father, we in this room here repent of what we have made leadership. Of the, the cultural icons and the cultural view that we have adopted and that we have taken in that says that we are somehow supposed to be this uh, high and exalted, powerful figure. And we have convinced ourselves that leadership is about us and it's about our position and who we are. Father, we repent of that. Father, we repent of the abuses of that. Father, I ask that you would show us where we need to repent and where we have gone wrong. 
Father, I pray that you would bring us to the cross. That you would allow us to see the bloody, beaten body of Jesus. And that we would know that that is the leadership we have been called to because that is what he has done for us. Father, we cannot do that on our own. We do not have the strength. We do not have the willpower. We do not care about others that much. So, Father, we pray for the empowering of the Spirit to enable us to endure and to suffer well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.